Heavenly Father, we praise your name, Father. We praise you for who you are, for what you have revealed concerning yourself, for what you do in our lives, for your goodness, for your mercy, for your grace, for your very existence, Father, which begins before time and goes forevermore. And we marvel, Father, in the power and in the sovereignty that you demonstrate in our lives and in this world. We stand in the grace of Christ through the faith that you have given by the blood of Christ. We come into this building, Father, mindful of who we are and who you are, of how far we fall short of the glory that you possess. And yet, of the mercy through Christ that you've made available so that we might stand in your presence one day, not in our own righteousness, but in his Not because of what we've done, but because through faith you've called us and you have equipped us for all works of righteousness. Because you have made us who you want us to be. And I thank you, Father, that we are being trained even now for that time in which we will serve you in the kingdom. And our training, Father, is set before us in the word of God. Let us put our full mind, our full heart to the matters that you have presented in your word. And to the conviction you'll bring by your spirit. Let us consider these things carefully. Let us be mindful of the response that is expected. And let us be concerned if it is not sufficient to please you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is Father's Day. I do think it's interesting we're studying the end of Jacob's life, the end of the story of Jacob being Father's Day. I think this is the third Father's Day we've crossed in the study of of Genesis. And if Jacob had one of those mugs that you give fathers on Father's Day, his would probably say number 4,654th dad. (laughs) And it's not to say the guy doesn't have merit, and he certainly is a man of God in many respects, but his chief failing, as we've studied all throughout the text of Genesis, his chief failing has been in the way he conducted himself with respect to his family and how that translated into the lives of his children. And in chapter 47, you see him stand before Pharaoh, as we study this morning, and acknowledge that very reality of his own past. Look at chapter 47 so far, the the story we've been studying, Jacob and Pharaoh standing face to face at the beginning of the chapter. The most powerful world political leader and the world's preeminent patriarch united for just a moment by the will and the hand of God. For now, the two are allies because each has need for the other, at least to some degree, Pharaoh, we learn, wants to keep Joseph close by, and he likes the idea of Joseph's family following him into Goshen because it just brings more Semites into the land of Egypt, shoring up the political power of this Semite ruler. And then there's Jacob. Jacob needs the place to wait out the famine. He needs somewhere that he can hold out until the time comes for his people to return. And it's beyond even the famine, as we learn. God has a plan to keep the nation of Israel in Egypt for a good period of time so that they may incubate, so they can grow into the nation he wants them to be. So the Lord has laid out this plan to Jacob's forefathers. And it is transpiring exactly the way God intended, exactly the way his word said it would go. When the time is right, they'll be brought back out of the land of Egypt, into the land of Canaan, in keeping with God's promises. And as I mentioned earlier, if you want to know how that story ends, well, you can learn it in our Exodus study. But for now, these two powerful men are engaged in a very intriguing political moment. And I think that's part of the goal today, is as we look at the text, is to understand the milieu, the, the atmosphere, the setting for this encounter. 
because both men have a power base and both have some concern about the other's motives and the other's interests. Last week, we saw Jacob bless Pharaoh. And as we noted then, that was a distinct reversal of roles for what would have been expected under the circumstances, because the lesser, we're told in Scripture, is always blessed by the greater. And as Jacob blessed Pharaoh, he was implying that difference that Jacob was the greater and Pharaoh was the lesser. This is exactly the opposite of what Pharaoh's court would have expected when a visitor comes into the Pharaoh's presence. We learned last week that Jacob understood he had the greater spiritual power, and so he took it upon himself to bless Pharaoh. But for Pharaoh, it must have no doubt been a surprise, uh, a presumptive surprise, in fact, to see Jacob in that moment choose to bless him. That's what drives the next part of the conversation where we pick up today in chapter 47, verse 8. This is Pharaoh's response to the presumptuousness of Jacob to bless him. Instead of the reverse, look what Pharaoh does next. Verse eight. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many years have you lived? So Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my sojourning are one hundred and thirty. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my father lived during the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had ordered. Joseph provided their father and his brothers and all his father's household with food, according to their little ones. Well, I want you to think about this encounter again from the point of view of two powerful men jockeying a bit to understand who really has the authority. Pharaoh's next question might actually sound a bit odd, particularly for us today, because we don't expect someone to start a conversation with, hey, by the way, how old are you anyway? That's not considered polite in our company, especially in a first time meeting. But in ancient times, in ancient days, age had an entirely different meaning than it does for us today. Instead of it being some kind of measure of fleeting youth and fleeting strength and beauty in their day, it had the opposite connotation. It was a measure of honor and it was a measure of authority. It was always the case that the older in any setting was honored above the younger. Therefore, Pharaoh's question really is an attempt to assess Jacob's honor, to make sense of why Jacob took the step of blessing him in the way that he did. He's perhaps considering that Jacob may have been so old that he saw himself as the superior of any other man on that basis alone. Jacob responds with an equally odd answer. He first directly gives the answer that Pharaoh asked. He says how old he is. He's 130. Now, Jacob adds from that point, though, that his years have been few. Well, first, we know Jacob's not dead yet. And he's going to live another 17 years in the land. So he's not on death's doorstop in any way. But on the other hand, he must have sensed that his life is drawing to a close and that it probably would not extend as long as his forefathers did. And that's the sense of the word few. You and I would be thrilled to find out we could live 130. Few, if any, could even reach that age today. But in the time that this was written, men did live that old and longer for reasons we studied back when we looked at Noah's time in chapter 9. And so when he says few, it's in relationship to his forefathers, as he said. Remember, Abraham, Abraham lived 175 years. His son, Isaac, lived 180 years. And here's Jacob living 130 at this stage and already feeling like his life is drawing to a close. But then he adds the more interesting piece. He says 
his years have been unpleasant. Unpleasant. You know, the word in Hebrew is ra, a very common word, R-A. It literally just means evil. You'll see it all over the Old Testament, evil. Jacob could have meant that in a couple of ways. On the one hand, he could have meant that his years were difficult, that his years were hard, as in unpleasant, the way my English chose to translate it. And that makes some sense. I mean, think about his life from all we've studied. He has struggled his whole life. Even in the womb, he struggled with his brother. He got a head start on his struggles. He fled the family. He never saw his mother again. He worked as an indentured servant for that tricky Laban guy for about 20 years. And he suffered betrayal after betrayal in that situation. He suffered the indignation of his son's shameful conduct when they were living up in the land. He suffered the loss of his favorite wife. He thought he lost his favorite son. I mean, it goes on and on and on. It's not inconceivable for a man in his situation to say, you know, my life has not been a bowl of cherries, as they used to say. You know, it hasn't exactly been a barrel of monkeys. It's been a problem really from the start. Now, when you consider what he's contrasting his life to, that of his forefathers, it makes more sense because think about Abraham and Isaac for a moment, his father and his grandfather. They were blessed with wealth, but compared to Jacob, they had relatively few cares. I mean, Abraham had a few bad moments, we know. Isaac didn't always do the right thing. But generally, they lived in peace. Generally, they had prosperity in the land. Isaac never even left the land. Jacob spent years outside the promised land trying to get back. Now he'll die in Egypt. Both his forefathers died in the land. So it could be that what Jacob means is I've had a relatively short life and not a great one. Not by the standards my father set. But the word raw can also mean something else. It can also be a reference to sinfulness, to evil in the sense of his own choices, in his own behavior, in other words. It could be a statement in which he is reflecting on the life he chose at so many points in the past. Because we know Jacob brought most of those hardships upon himself. That's the testimony we've studied in the book. Scripture testifies Jacob's life was hard because... He often chose to be defined by his mistakes rather than by his triumphs. That's the the story of Jacob. We first met him, as I said, struggling with his brother in the womb. Then we saw him, the one scheming and contending with his father, contending with his brother, contending with his uncle, with his sons, and most of all, with the Lord. And so it might be, and I think it is the case, that he's saying, I have had a relatively sinful existence in comparison to the lives of my forefathers. It's a confession to the question of who do you think you are comes the answer, you know, not much, not by the standards my father set. That second interpretation, I think, fits the context of this moment far better because the whole conversation has turned on this moment of blessing, on this presumptuousness that Jacob showed in demonstrating a greater authority than Pharaoh himself, the most powerful man on earth in the day. And Pharaoh's immediate reaction is to say, in so many words, who do you think you are, buddy? How old are you? But what Jacob says in response is anything other than claiming worldly authority. Jacob does not support the contention that he's greater from the perspective that Pharaoh suggests. By earthly standards, by human standards, Jacob refuses and rejects that standard. Jacob says, first of all, I'm relatively young. I'm only 130. He rejects the notion that his superiority comes from a standard of age. 
from the worldly perspective of age. And then he adds to that, and by the way, I've obtained to far less honor than my forefathers did when you look at my life in comparison to them. So I do not have a life that in and of itself has demonstrated my worthiness to receive honor. That is not the basis on which I offer you a blessing. That's not false modesty, folks. That really isn't. In fact, I like to think of this as the best moment we have in record of Jacob's life. When Jacob stood before the most powerful man in all of the earth in his day and he spoke truth in humility. He does not possess a personal history that reflects any honor upon himself, much less honor he could bestow on another man. But yet his testimony is not that he is worthless or without an opportunity to bless. His testimony is that he has an option to bless Pharaoh. The question then remains, well, where does this blessing come from? On what basis do you extend me that honor? It is from the honor that God himself has bestowed upon Jacob by the word of God. Jacob, we know, is the man, the only man in all of the world in that day, given an inheritance by the living God. Every man had some degree of inheritance based on what his own family had obtained. But this man, he had an inheritance defined by God and appointed to him and his descendants. No one else on earth had that. No other man carried that promise. And long after Pharaoh and the people of Egypt have perished, Jacob and all of the children of God, by faith, will reign in glory with Christ. John Nelson Darby once wrote this. The least and most faltering of God's children has superiority in the presence of the most elevated man in the world when viewed from eternity. I mean, it's easy to see ourselves in relationship to other men at a deficit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that none of us are noble or wise or powerful. And it's by God's design that it would be that way in the body of Christ generally. But God isn't asking us to measure our worth on human standards, much less temporal ones here today and, and gone tomorrow. He's asking us to do what Jacob did. Jesus says this in the Gospels, Matthew ten seventeen. Jesus speaking to his disciples said this. Beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Empty vessels filled by the Spirit of God, have far more honor and immense superiority over empty vessels still empty. It may fall to us in God's sovereignty to stand before powerful men as Jacob did here. And perhaps that might even include a king one day or a president or someone of immense authority in our world. Or more likely, it may just be our company boss. Or a principal or teacher. And in that moment, for whatever reason and whatever the context, we may have an opportunity to bring a blessing in the same way or in the same sense as Jacob. And it matters how we convey that blessing. We come as Jacob in humility, recognizing we bring nothing special in and of ourselves. We are not there because of something in us that is natural to us. We don't come in the power like they come in power. If they're smart, if they're crafty, if they're politically savvy, 
our tools in response are not the same. No matter how smart we are, no matter how well we know the system. We do not pretend we are worthy of honor by our nature. We do not bless others on the account of our own accomplishments, especially our spiritual accomplishments. And let me tell you, in the body of Christ, that's often the temptation. We often wear certain badges of accomplishment because of our walk with Christ or because of our work in ministry or whatever the case may be. And we throw those things on people, gracing them with our presence, gracing them with our wisdom. We've got to be careful with that. We're supposed to be like Jacob in this moment. One of the few times, by the way, you can go to the story of Jacob and say, do what he did. We discount our natural human worth, which is worthless in God's eyes. We acknowledge we are not especially wise or powerful or noble, etc. We are simply vessels. Carrying that humility gives us opportunity to transfer the blessing God may have. And blessing means, in general, God's favor, God's grace on them through us in some fashion. Not the least of all would be the presentation of the gospel. The chief and highest form of blessing God could bestow through us to someone. But at the same time, don't ever enter those moments thinking you go absent power. Don't ever come into that moment and say, you know, I'm just Steve. I'm just whomever. I, I, I'm a guy no one knows or a, a gal that no one's heard of. And this person, they're, they're so powerful. They're so accomplished. I really can't stand and make a case or do anything of worth. I'm better just to stay quiet. What would that have looked like if Jacob had done that? But he didn't. He took it upon himself. He blessed the man and, in a sense, risked something. What do we bring? We bring the name of Jesus Christ and the spirit of God living in us. And when we combine that with humility, powerful things happen. Notice what Jacob combined. He delivered a blessing to Pharaoh, which is a spiritual honor to Pharaoh. And he had the power and the authority to do that because he had the promises of God and he knew who he was in those promises. And yet he delivered it with pure personal humility. Even when Pharaoh asked him for the basis of his ability to bless He turned it around and said, I'm nobody. He honored the Lord. He didn't try to rob the Lord of that glory. And that's the call we have. This is how James sums it up as we move on. James 1, 9 and 10. He said, the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. He's saying, if you are the humble brother humble by world standards, then reflect on the greatness of God's promises and the delivery that will come in the day and know you are blessed. But if you happen to be that rich brother, and there will be men and women in the body of Christ who God appoints a greater proportion of human wealth, of of earthly wealth, and so be it. But if that's you, don't glory in your riches. Glory, he says, in your humiliation. He's referring to the repentant heart that God brings to every believer. Humiliation in the sense of the knowledge of your sinfulness, of your unworthiness for what God has done. If you feel that there's something in this world that props you up, turn it aside and consider who you were before Christ pulled you up in grace. And if you are that one who feels you have no worth because in this world, according to its measurements, you have so little to show, Turn that aside and reflect on the inheritance that is so much more than you can possibly imagine. And in both cases, God is being glorified. And so the meeting ends, we're told. Jacob goes out from the presence of Pharaoh, settles in Goshen, just as Joseph intended. In Hebrew, by the way, the phrase went out from, that conveys a sense of permanence. 
In other words, went away forever would be another way to see it. These men apparently never meet again. This is their one and only meeting. And that, again, demonstrates the plan here is working, keeping Israel separate from the people of Egypt. From there, they settle and receive, it says, the best of the land. Now, the story turns at this point because we've settled on Jacob's path. We know essentially where he's going to be for the next 17 years. He comes up again here a little while later because we see his death. But in the meantime, there's still Joseph. He's still in power. He's got a job to do. His vacation's over. He's back on the job. He's got five years of famine left to work on and to take care of the people with. And it says here that while his family goes up to Ramses, he proceeds back to work, which would have been in Memphis. By the way, there's a, a bit of an issue here with some biblical criticists about the fact that it says they're going to Ramses. And the reason is this, because the first pharaoh named Ramses doesn't come along until many years after Israel leaves Egypt and goes back to Canaan in the Exodus. And so the critics would say, well, how can you be speaking at this point in history about Ramses when Ramses hasn't even been born yet? Well, they're making a mistake. The mistake they're making is assuming that the place Ramses was named after the pharaoh, when in reality it's the other way around. The pharaoh took his name from the place. The place always had the name. Ramses is a word in Egyptian that just simply means the sun god created it. And so Ra, the sun god, Ramses, created this place, and so they called it Ramses, and that was the name of the place in Goshen where the nation of Israel settled. Moving on, now we go back to Joseph. Look what happens next. A bit of a section here. We're going to read chapter 47, verses 13, all the way to 26, as we study what Joseph is doing in administration of the country. Verse 13. Now, there was no food in all the land because the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into the Pharaoh's house. When the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food, for why should we die in your presence? For all our money is gone. Then Joseph said, well, Give up your livestock, and I will give you food for your livestock since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys. And he fed them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. When that year was ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent and the cattle are my Lord's. There is none left for my Lord except our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, by us and our land for food? And we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. So give us seed that we may live and not die and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every Egyptian sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. And thus the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he removed them to the cities from one end of Egypt's border to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh, and they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have today bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now, here is seed for you, and you may sow the land. At the harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own seed of the field, and for your food, and for those of your household, as food for your little ones. So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. 
Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, valid to this day, that Pharaoh should have the fifth, only the land of the priests did not become Pharaoh's. Well, in verse 13, it starts the story here as if we have moved back in time to the very beginning. This is a common technique, particularly in the Old Testament, as stories are told. We know that we've moved past the beginning of the famine in terms of Joseph's story and Jacob's story. We're actually two years into the seven-year famine. But at this point, Moses is trying to tell the story of how Joseph addressed the need in the land. And to get that story in its fullest way, Moses has temporarily stepped back a few years in time to tell the story from the beginning of the famine. So from verse 13 onward, we've gone back to the beginning, to the point of the seven-year famine. And now we're learning how it affected all the nations. In the first stage of the famine, we're told that families both inside and outside Egypt came streaming into the land seeking relief because they had exhausted their own personal storehouses. Whatever they had had coming into the famine was gone. And, of course, with the land barren, no one's planting, no one's harvesting. And so everyone is watching their families potentially starve under these circumstances. And then they hear that there's grain in Egypt. Well, you don't have to be a genius to figure out you either die or you go to Egypt. And that's what everyone has been doing. Now, remember, the Lord revealed to Pharaoh and did so through Joseph's interpretation that the seven years of famine would be preceded by the seven years of plenty. And so they had to store up in the best years to be ready for the worst. And we studied all of this, of course. They had so much coming through that seven years of plenty that they couldn't even count it. It's pouring out of their storehouses. It's coming out of their ears. They just have food everywhere you can see. And now the plan kicks into the second half where the famine has started, and they're supposed to share all of that abundance with not just the people of Egypt, but with people of the whole region. Can you imagine how much grain must be stored up if it's going to feed the entire Middle East for seven years? So then the time comes to feed. What's so fascinating about this account is Joseph does not give handouts. This guy is tough. He's not about to just give people what he has. Initially, he requires cash. So all the money, we're told, of the entire region, both in Canaan and in Egypt, is funneled into the treasury of Egypt within the first year. And after that year, as the money is exhausted, then people are stuck with the same problem they had last year. But now they don't have any money. They still got to eat. So then they come saying, we don't have cash. And Joseph says, yeah, but you got livestock. And they said, yeah, sure enough, we do. And he says, for livestock, you can have grain. So then people start trading their animals. And then at that point, after two years, Egypt owns virtually all the livestock in the Middle East. I mean, the wealth of this nation is off the charts at this point. After another year, they traded all their livestock. So now, with the famine still continuing, they got to go to the last step. They say, you know what? All we have left is our bodies and the land itself, which is of no good to us right now anyway, because there's a famine. Once again, they trade that. After all, they say, isn't their personal survival worth more than the land and even more than their personal liberty? And the obvious answer is yes. You can't have liberty if you're dead. It all kind of hinges on that. So... Joseph begins to buy all the land. He begins then to turn all of the people into the slaves of Pharaoh and they go into the cities. He relocates them into the cities of Egypt so they can do the work of slaves in the nation of Egypt. So at this point, how are they going to pay back what they're getting at that point forward? Because the famine isn't over and they still got to eat. That's when Joseph institutes a system by which through their labor, they'll be paying off their debt as they eat the grain. And that's the 20 percent tax. 
So as a slave, they have to have something for themselves, and then there's something they have to pay back to Pharaoh, and that's the, the taxation system that Joseph implemented. It just excluded the priests because they were not counted in this system. Now, at this point, you're tempted to second-guess Joseph in all that he did. Because after all, why would he demand so much of the people? To include slavery. Shouldn't he just be giving it away in some kind of charitable fashion? I mean, it's one thing to charge a little. We understand that. But at some point, the people have nothing left. You just got to do the right thing, right? Why demand so much? Well, there are at least three reasons why he does this. First, this is the honorable way to do it. You have to understand, this is honorable for the people. This is a way that shows dignity for them, that gives them some kind of dignified way to seek a handout. The ancient world understood this far better than we do today. The only right thing to do when helping another person is to expect that person to pay whatever they can to obtain what they need. Whatever they can. To give them food for nothing while they still had a means of paying a fair price was considered dishonoring in that day. It was insulting to even suggest it. In fact, if you noticed in the narrative we read, in almost all cases, the people suggested it. Particularly the last one, the one that might get you the most bothered, the idea of slavery. And that was their idea because they understood that their honor was at stake. And so the way Joseph approaches this ensures that the people keep their dignity and their honor, even as he deprives them of their possessions, so that they can stay alive. Not a bad deal, really. I know by our standards, we would think there's something dishonoring or unfair. But we have to check that against culture. Second reason this is smart. It's a conservation of the resources. By demanding that the people trade their livestock, for example, he relieves them of the burden of trying to feed animals they can't feed. What's going to happen to those livestock if they don't have grain? What good are they? It's like the story out of Luke 16 of the unrighteous manager. When he's fired, and right before he's fired, he goes around and cuts the bills of all those who owe money because he knew that was a way of building goodwill with them, using something he was about to lose anyway, which was his influence and and value of that position. It's the same principle here. The livestock needed grain, something the people needed too. Are they going to buy grain to feed the livestock if they're hungry? No. These livestock were going to probably die of starvation. And then what good are they to anyone? So... In the way it turned out, the livestock are preserved and their value is preserved and the people get the grain and they keep their honor and they keep their dignity. It's a good deal. Then the third reason. Folks, this is just smart economic theory. If Joseph had just opened up the storehouses on day one and said, you know what, the famine's here, time for you guys to eat to your heart's content. Come on in, it's a buffet and it's all free. How long do you think the food supplies last under those conditions? When something is free and highly desirable, it does not last long. For example, in our grocery stores, if if the local HEB opened up the doors and said, you know what, everything is free, how long would the shelves have food on them? They'd be bare overnight, right? If you charge the fair price for something, it still sells, but it sells at a manageable pace so the resources can be made to last long enough to serve the need. This is just smart theory. He really has no other option but to charge for it or it runs out. Now, all of those reasons, when you add them up, they show Joseph acting in a responsible way, in a wise way, managing the resources, which is the job God gave him to do. I think it's also an interesting thing to understand that when God calls men and women to manage things, it means to control the fleshly aspects of humanity in some context so that we do the right thing for them, even if it's not what they want. 
people want things that aren't always good for them. And if we have a guidance from the spirit, by the word of God, by some standard that God provides that says do it X way. When we do that, we can have confidence that many won't like it, but they'll all be blessed. If we give people what they want in the way they want, they'll be momentarily happy and perhaps in the long time, very unhappy. Even the slavery was an acceptable response. I know we think of slavery with disgust, and that's rightly so, given our history with its practice. But in this day, it's an entirely different form of slavery. First of all, it's voluntary. It's not mandatory. They're being voluntarily entering into this standard of of slavery. We would call it bond servant. Secondly, it's economically driven. Third, it comes under different conditions to include pay. You know, you might even think of this as a job that you sign up for, but you can't quit easily. It's one where you're owned by your boss, where you're working to pay off debt. In fact, I think it sounds a lot like our jobs today when you think about it. But Joseph's doing everything exactly the way the Lord expected, and he's using his usual excellent and obedient fashion of work. By the time the famine's over, Egypt is by far the richest country on earth, maybe always was, but now it's at a whole new level. But here's the interesting part about God's plan in all of this, because you may be wondering, why does he go to so much effort to enrich a country like Egypt? Because they don't stay there. There's going to come a time in the not too distant future when Israel is going to leave Egypt. And when they do, the scripture says they're going to plunder Egypt. And all of this wealth doesn't stay here. A good portion of it goes with Israel when they leave Egypt. And you know what that material, that huge wealth eventually becomes? The tabernacle. When we look at it in the Exodus study next door in a few months, We'll come to understand how much wealth was represented in the materials that were devoted to the building of the tabernacle. And that wealth, folks, it makes anything we do today pale in comparison. It's easily the richest construction project per square inch that's ever been done in all humanity. Where did all that wealth come from? Joseph. We may not, in fact, we often will not understand the distant consequences of what God is working to do through our obedience. Almost certainly we do not. But God is capable of looking so much further into the future than we ever will that as we obey in doing something that in the moment might seem a bit off from God's purposes and plans down the road when it all becomes clear, whether here or in eternity, one way or the other, then we'll be able to look back and we'll realize how important our step of obedience was. Or conversely, as you know, Joseph is a picture of Christ. We've studied this so many ways and so many times over the course of Joseph. And it's been remarkable to me, I hope to you as well, just how often the storyline of Joseph gives us some new detail, some new picture of Christ. Well, there's one here as well. When we come to faith in Christ, Scripture tells us we place our trust, we place our reliance in Him as our righteousness, as our provider, as our master. But as each of us entered into that relationship by faith, we came, as it were, pulling a wagon full of things we've accumulated in this world. And for many of us, that wagon carried some pretty impressive things. Maybe a huge savings account. Maybe a a bunch of investments with advisors helping us manage all that wealth. Maybe it's property. Maybe it was houses and cars and various trinkets that we've collected over our life. Maybe it was a life of achievement. Maybe it's not so much the physical, maybe it's more the reputation. We have achievements and degrees and awards and promotions and fame in some form. We have a lot of followers on Facebook and Twitter, and we're just all psyched about that. Hopefully I'll know what that's like someday. Perhaps 
It's a testimony of natural ability, beauty, brains, strength, pedigree, eloquence, sophistication in all ways. We're just bringing that stuff with us because that's who we are. We say it all the time, right? Christ saves us where he finds us, but he loves us too much to leave us there, right? Well, when he found us, we had this wagon of stuff that we cling to, that we said made us important, that made us worth something. In a sense, you could say that was the currency of our lives. That's what we could use when we needed to, to buy things like buying attention or buying respect or buying a boost in our ego or buying self-worth or just buying independence. When we needed a favor, we dipped into the wagon, we pulled something out, we made a withdrawal, we got what we needed. Those are the things we valued. That's what we held dear. And then Christ came along. The master who offered us the one thing. We desperately needed, but did not have the daily bread of the spirit living in us, of our salvation. Our relationship with Christ is a gift, according to Scripture, one that is not dependent on our works, we know. But that doesn't mean it doesn't come without a price, without expectations. To receive the blessings and the rewards of that new relationship we've been given through grace, through faith in Christ We're expected to follow the master and he makes demands upon us. He wants us to give up the wagon, so to speak. All of those sources of personal wealth and power and self-esteem and all the things that we think make us who we are in life. He wants us to unhitch that and let it go. He does not ask us to be a pauper. He does not ask us to have no sense of self-worth. He is not asking us to have humility to the detriment of our ability to serve him. But he is asking us to make sure that's not what we depend on. We are called, Scripture says, to be bondservants, willing slaves of Christ. To serve the God that saved us and loves us. To forsake the world and all that it offers so that we would have both eternal life and life abundantly. Now, Joseph, we know in the story, took the worthless things that people possessed. And by worthless, I mean they couldn't sustain their lives. And he took those things and he turned it into life into bread. And he demanded that they give it up. They had to give up their wealth. They had to give up their possessions. They even had to give up their personal liberty. They had to become slaves of the master to receive what he offered. Folks, that's the gospel. I mean, really, that is the gospel. The gospel is that we are saved by grace, through faith, not of ourselves, not by work, so that no man may boast. But that is the beginning of the gospel. Then we have the rest of the New Testament. And the rest of the New Testament says, walk in your salvation, in the spirit, not in the flesh. Seek to live for him. Serve him. Make yourselves emptied as Christ did for the church. And so on and so on and so on. Unhitch the wagon and give up what the master requires. And you know what happens? You live. Not just eternally. Not just in the future. But now let's go to Lord in prayer and let's end with a mind that looks forward to our baptism today in which we get once more an opportunity today to preach the gospel and to call men and women to obey. Heavenly Father, you can speak truth through donkeys. So, Father, the fact that you would use me or anyone else gives us no opportunity to glory in ourselves. You can speak through the wind, through rain, through fire through your creation in so many ways. We are one more empty vessel you may choose to fill for your glory. But what a blessing it is, Father, that you choose to fill us. What a sign of love 
that you would regard man and that you would know us and call us and walk with us. Father, I pray that as we seek to obey today, both as a congregation and in the individuals who will come into baptism today, I pray, Father, that you would make these small steps of obedience into a great opportunity to glorify you among the nations, to speak the truth, to be useful to you in some small way. Let us go with humility, but with an assurance that we come with power, not our own, but yours. And let us bless those, Father, who you put in our path with the word of truth, both spoken and lived out in our lives. Thank you for Oak Hill Bible Church, Father, for the men and women who make this place a place that reflects your love and your truth. Let us call others as you give us opportunity to join us so that we may be strengthened to the work ahead. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.